Can I have slides five and six, please? Just to let you know where we're going today, but we're going to take a little bit of a detour to get there. Starting uh, this week in chapter three, we're going to focus on the idea of time. So in chapter three, the teacher brings together the little pictures of time, verses one through eight, all the seasons of time, the seasons of our lives. And then from verse 12 on, he's going to talk about the bigger picture of time. So we're going to focus on time this morning. But I'd like to remind you where we have been and where we're going by showing you again the, the Bible Project video which over, overviews the book of Ecclesiastes. We watched it four weeks ago. Let's see if it begins to make more sense to you today. Would you please watch the Bible Project video, uh, Ecclesiastes? The book of Ecclesiastes, it's part of the Bible's wisdom literature and it opens with this line, the words of Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now in Hebrew, the word Kohelet means someone who has gathered people together. And in this case, it's to learn. So it's often translated in English as teacher. And the teacher is said to be a son or a descendant of King David. And so there are different views about who this figure might have been. Many think that it refers to King Solomon, others to maybe one of the later kings of David's line, and still others think that it's actually a later Israelite teacher who has adopted a Solomon-like persona as a teaching aid. Whichever of these views is correct, the key thing is to recognize that the teacher is a character in the book and is different than the author of the book who remains anonymous. So we do hear the teacher's voice for most of the book, but it's actually a different voice, the author, who introduces us to the teacher in the first sentence and then at the end concludes the book by summarizing and evaluating everything the teacher just said. So the author is someone who wants us to hear all that the teacher has to say and then help us process it and form our own conclusion. So what does the teacher have to say? Well, the author summarizes the teacher's basic message at the beginning and right at the end, and it's hevel, hevel. Everything is utterly hevel. Now, most English Bibles translate this word hevel as meaningless, but that doesn't quite capture the heart of the idea. In Hebrew, hevel literally means vapor or smoke. And the teacher uses this word 38 times in the book as a metaphor to describe how life is, first of all, temporary or fleeting, like a wisp of smoke. But secondly, also how life is an enigma or a paradox. Like smoke, it appears solid, but when you try and grab onto it, there's nothing there. So there's so much beauty or goodness in the world, but just when you're enjoying it, tragedy strikes and it all seems to blow away. Or we all have a strong sense of justice, but all the time bad things happen to good people. So life is constantly, it's unpredictable, it's unstable, or in the teacher's words, like chasing after the wind. Hevel. Now that's kind of a downer. So why is he saying all of this? The author's basic goal is to target all of the ways that we try to build meaning and purpose in our lives apart from God. And he lets the teacher deconstruct these. So the author thinks we spend most of our time investing energy and emotion in things that ultimately have no lasting meaning or significance. And he lets the teacher give us a hard lesson in reality. You can see this most clearly in the opening and closing poems, which focus first of all on time and then on death. So the teacher says, you can spend your whole life working and achieving because you think that makes your life meaningful. You should really stop and consider the march of time. For all of the human effort that takes place in the world, nothing really ever changes. 
So sure, we develop technology and we build nations that rise and fall, but go climb a mountain and see if it cares. It was there long before any of us, and it will be here long after. I mean, no one's even going to remember you or anything you did a hundred years from now, but that mountain, it'll still be there. And the ocean will still be breaking on the beach, and the sun will still rise and set. And so time will eventually erase you and me and everything that we care about. And if that's not disheartening enough, the teacher also can't stop talking about death all the way through the book, but especially in this poem near the end. He says, death is the great equalizer, and it renders meaningless most of our daily activities. It devours the wise and the fool, the rich and the poor, no matter who you are, what you've done, good or bad, we're all going to die, and it's inescapable. So with these two ideas in hand, the teacher goes on to consider all the activities and false hopes that we invest our lives in to find meaning and significance, like wealth or career or social status or pleasure. So you think working hard is going to make life worth it? Think about the stress and the toll that that takes on you, all the anxiety and the sleepless nights. And by the time you actually earn some wealth, you're going to be too old to enjoy it anyway. And then by the time that you have to pass it on to someone, they may not even be someone who cares about anything that you did. Or maybe you think pleasure is going to make life worth it for you. Go for it. You know, live for your vacations, live for the weekend party. Monday always comes. Hevel, hevel. Everything is utterly hevel. So what does the teacher advocate then? That we become pure hedonists or relativists? Well, no, that would be hevel too. The teacher acknowledges the ideas from Proverbs that living by wisdom and the fear of the Lord, that these have real advantages. On the whole, life will probably go better for you. See, but the problem is that even living by wisdom and the fear of the Lord, they're hevel too, because they don't guarantee a good life. Good people die tragically, and horrible people live long and prosper. There's just too many exceptions. And so even wisdom is a hevel. Again, not meaningless, but an enigma. Wisdom doesn't work the way you think it should all of the time. So what's the way forward in the midst of all this hevel? And here, paradoxically, the teacher discovers the key to the true enjoyment of life under the sun. It's accepting hevel. It's acknowledging that everything in your life is totally out of your control. About six different times at some of the bleakest moments in his monologue, the teacher talks about the gift of God, which is the enjoyment of simple, good things in life, like friendship or family, a good meal or a sunny day. You can't control these things. You're certainly not guaranteed them, but that's their beauty. When I come to adopt a posture of total trust in God, it frees me to simply enjoy my life as I actually experience it, not as I think it ought to be. Because even my expectations about what life ought to be are ultimately hevel, hevel. Everything under the sun is utterly hevel. And so the teacher's words come to a close. Right here at the end, the author speaks up again, and he brings it all to a conclusion. He says, the teacher's words are very important for us to hear. He likens them to a shepherd's staff with a goad, a pointy end, which might hurt when it pokes you. But he says the teacher is trying to poke you to get you to move in the right direction towards greater wisdom. 
The author then warns us that you can actually take the teacher's words too far, and you could spend your whole life buried in books trying to answer life's existential puzzles. Don't try, he says. You'll never get there. And so instead, the author offers his own conclusion, and it's this. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of humans, for God will bring every deed into judgment, every hidden thing, whether good or evil. And so the author thinks it's good to let the teacher challenge your false hopes and remind you that time and death make most of life completely out of your control. But what gives life true meaning is the hope of God's judgment. The hope that one day God will clear away all of the hevel and bring true justice to our world. And it's that hope that should fuel a life of honesty and integrity before God, despite the fact that I remain puzzled by most of life's mysteries. And that's the wisdom of the book of Ecclesiastes. So is it starting to make more sense than the first time you saw it? Now, this is very, very progressive. So I'm going to open your Bibles, please, to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We'll look at one verse, look at one slide, and then we're going to have another song, surprising song, perhaps. Chapter 3, verse 1. So we're going to, in this week, we're going to talk about the idea of time. In chapter 3, verse 1, worship leaders, come on out, if you would, please. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. So we're going to focus on time, but time in two different perspectives. So can I have slide six now, please? So the thing I want you to remember is we live within the boundaries of time, but God does not. So what we're going to see in our passage in chapter 13, or chapter 3, 1 through 8, we're going to see this time, the time we live in, and we're going to learn, see how the teacher looks at our life here. And then in verses 9 and 10, you'll hit a wall. And then he says in verse 11, turn this way. Because now we're going to go a different direction. Now it's interesting, in 1965, Ecclesiastes 13, 1 through 8, was the number one song in America. It was literally taken word for word from Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. I want you to listen for a word that's repeated over and over and over. Would you listen? To everything turn, turn, turn There is a season turn, turn, turn And a time to every purpose under heaven a time to be born a time to die a time to plant a time to reap a time to kill a time to heal a time to laugh a time to weep to everything turn 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 there is a season A time to build up, a time to break down, a time 
I asked Alan if he would play the song, and he said, I've never heard of it before. <laughs> so great job, team. Thank you so much. It's back before Jesus. <laughs> so did you catch what this, what this is about? If you look at your Bibles, chapter 3, 1 through 8, what, what in the world is he getting at? So here's a sentence I want you to think about. Fundamentally, what he's suggesting is that in the days of our lives, every single, these days, we live as control freaks, trying to control our lives. In chapter 33, 1 through 8, what he's saying is, this happens, that happens, this happens, that happens, this happens, that happens, this happens. He's just describing human life. And look where he goes in verse 10. So it's really 9 and 10. Look where he ends up. So he's just talking about these random things of all of our lives. Verse 9, he asks, what do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. What's he talking about? Chapter 3, verses 2 through 8. All of that is given to us. Now, I'm going to give a sentence. I'm going to start to unpack now for coming weeks. So I'm going to just lay it out, and I'll explain more in the weeks to come. What he's going to start to suggest to us is that life is gift, not gain. Life is a whole plethora of experiences, none of which can be controlled, which make no sense to most of us. That's why in slide six, I said there's two different perspectives. We have our perspective. 30 sometimes, he uses the phrase, under the sun, under the sun. He's walking around, how's this? A time to live, a time to die, a time to plan. To t- what? He, what? And then he says in verse nine, it's just, it's a lot. So what he's saying to us is, the time of this life is a lot. And then he says in the next verse, he says, I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race, all the things of daily living. But now he's going to change time. Look at verse 12. He has made everything beautiful in its time. That means there's beauty in all the things we just read about, chapter 3, 1 through 8. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So slide 6 again, please. 
So here's, here's the bottom line. It comes right here from this verse. He has set eternity in the human hearts. No one can fathom what God has done. We live in the boundaries of time, chapter 3, 1 through 8. And we do not see the fullness of time. So if, you, if I would read those verses and apply it, I would say, I don't understand a time to live, a time to die. Why does our 27-year-old son die after 10,023 days? Why does cancer come? Why does one of our staff members' brothers is fighting for life? Motorcycle fell on him, heart attack, all kinds of stuff. So we look at life, chapter three, one through eight, and we're trying to control it. And so in this age when everything is so busy and so fast and so big and there's so, we're trying to control we strive to control. And what I want to say to you for coming weeks is life is a gift. It's not something we gain. Because as the preacher says to us, we lose it all. It just disappears. So they start talking about eternity. Chapter 13, or 3, verse 12. He says, I know that there is nothing better for people to be happy and to do good while they live. Now, this, what you see in 3.12 He's going to repeat in 322. Let me stop for a second. So after the third service last week, kind of sitting over here where the Hartsons are sitting, three young guys, Kyle and um, Brett and um, Mick, heard what, what was heard last week's Sunday. Remember the balloons I popped last Sunday? The point I was trying to make last week's Sunday was that we often create these balloons around these things that we think will make us happy. And so I popped the balloons. It was interesting. We had a, a, a person with unique uh, abilities and, and, and lack of abilities at the third service. And those balloons popped, and the person was just so frightened. And I thought, isn't that a beautiful way to describe what happens when the thing we think will make us happy is burst? So last week was burst, burst, all the bubbles, just burst. <laughs> And now what he's saying is, so remember now, you live in a very marked season of time and it doesn't make any sense. So for the control freaks among us, may I just tell us one more time, life is not controllable. Here's what, here's what the studies are. Of all the things we worry about, 8% happens. So what he's saying in those first verses is, control freaks, you can't because just stuff happens. But then he says, but God has put eternity in our hearts. And then he says to us, with eternity in our hearts, verse 12, I know there's nothing better for people to do than to be happy and to do good while they live. Do good. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. Now here he begins the third, second time, he's going to start to poke at what actually brings a sense of wellness in life that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction all, all their toil. This is the gift of God. And this is where I get the phrase, life is gift, not gain. So Lyle just had open heart surgery. Lyle is here today. He very well could have died. His life is a gift. 
He didn't gain his life. His life is a gift. All of life is a gift. He says, and I know in verse 14, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that people will fear. And now five times this word fear is used. If you have your own Bible, circle that and write the word worship. The reason God does these things so that people will worship him. So go back, to, go back, let's go back one more time. Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in his time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Let me just talk for that for one second. I'm, I'm going to give you two illustrations. Setting something in our hearts that has eternity. How about food? Think about this. I want you to think about this. Someone said if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John carefully, 88 chapters, if you read it carefully, this is the quotation mark, Jesus ate his way through the Gospels. Why does he say that? Because he's at eating with people all the time. What does the scripture say will happen someday? What do we call it? The wedding banquet of the Lamb. There is this, when you have a good meal with people you love, you are having a taste of eternity. And what does he say over and over in light of the randomness of life and all the things that happen? What's he going to say to us? Focus on your key relationships. Eat a great meal with people you love. Have some rich conversation. And do your job the best you can. Because you know what's to come. Let me give you another illustration. In an age in which we have done so much sexual stuff in public, online, and all that stuff, all the painful, all the painful expressions of sexuality outside the bounds of a husband and wife in marriage. What's the deeper longing? God has placed eternity in our hearts. So I'm going to be real careful because children are here. But the longing for sexual intimacy is actually an eternal longing for relationship with our triune God. Now think about this. If you go back to Genesis 2, it says you leave your mother and father, you cleave, and you become one flesh. One of soul, one of heart, one of spirit, one of body. Someday, with all people in the new heaven and new earth, somehow we will all be one. So sexual expressions in this earth the longing to be connected is actually an expression, a longing for something, eternity. And so what he says here is God has placed eternity in our hearts. But in the first eight verses, we're just thinking about me and myself and here, and, and, and it's all random. I can't control it. So then he says, okay, time out. You remember that God has placed eternity in your heart. So pay attention to that. So now watch what happens next, next verse. So after verse 13, I think it is, or verse 15, whatever it is has already been, and what has been before, God will call the past to account. If you have a footnote, look at the footnote near the bottom. Your text says God will call the past to account. Verse 15, footnote, God calls back the past. So look at the next verse. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment... Wickedness was there, 
in the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity and a time to judge every deed. Let me talk about judgment now. I'm going to give you a sentence I want you to think about. If, I'm going to give you a few phrases. If you are in Christ and Christo, if you are a person who has sensed God has called you from darkness into light, if you have said his life and love and blood covers a multitude of sins, if you acknowledge him as your Lord and your Savior, listen to this, judgment day will be the best day of your life. The best day of your life. Now, if you're not in Christ, it'll be the worst day of your life. Now, what's he talking about? So let me just tell you, last week I went on to this, and I got to be careful because we get trolled, and I'm going to get killed by a certain large company. I got to be careful because we're getting trolled. I cannot wait. I'm talking judgment. I cannot wait until the day when sex traffickers stand before Jesus. I was taking care of two little granddaughters last week. And what ran through my head is if those two little girls were sexually abused, oh my. And a particular company is allowing the third world to traffic children around the world. I want the judge to judge that. I want every single child who's been sexually abused to be healed. And I want the people who have sexually abused children to stand before the judge to make things right. There are things that need to be made right. And for those of us who are in Christo, Judgment Day is going to be welcome home, good and faithful. Welcome, I love you, my child, my daughter, my son. Welcome home, welcome home, welcome home. I love you. But I'm longing for the day when that which is evil and wrong is addressed, justice, by Jesus. Amen? See, so if I'm living in chapter 3, 1 through 8, and I'm just focusing on all these random things that happen to me and I can't deal with, and I forget that eternity is placed in my heart, and I start to think about the bigger things, the eternal things, because God sees not just what's above but below. He's not bound by time. When I was a younger pastor, I was involved with uh, a healing ministry in which we tried to heal the memories of people who've been dam damaged by sexual abuse. And we used a whole number of beautiful Christian things. But one of the things we did in prayer, teams of us would gather with someone and we'd pray together as a team in safety with a person's permission, all, all done uprightly. And we would invite Jesus We'd invite Jesus to go back into the memories of the pain, the trauma. And we would invite Jesus to bring healing to those moments of enormous trauma. Now, why in the world would we do that? Because our God is not bound by time. 
He is outside of time. So if we live in chapter 3, 1 through 8, it's just a time to kill, a time to die, a time to pick up stones. And he says, wait a second. <laughs> Pay attention. He's put eternity in your heart. And the day is coming when all things will be made right. So let's go back to the passage. What does he say? He says in chapter 3, verse 18, I said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like animals. Now, we're not talking evolution here now. Verse 19, surely the fate of human beings is like that of animals. The same fate awaits both of them. As one dies, a human dies, so the animal dies. As the animal dies, so the human dies. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is hevel. It's breath. It's quick. It's moving. It's active. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward, if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. Now he repeated, first, same thing in verse 12. So I saw there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. But who can bring them to see what will happen after them? So back to my conversation with Kyle and Mick and, um, and Brett, right there, 22. A person enjoys their work. So where have we gone so far in, 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 in what he's asking us to do? He's asking us now in chapter 3, think about time. Be mindful of everyday living, absolutely, but in light of the random nature of all the things that can happen to you. So in the last just short season in our family, we've had four deaths. We've had, we had six deaths, six deaths. A whole bunch of trauma, all of it, many of us, right? If I'm going to just focus on the last three years, how easy it is to be depressed or angry or hurt or crabby or disappointed or cynical. But if I have an idea that their time is more than right now, it is, goes on and on and on. When I understand time is eternal and God is outside time and he is always working. When you're really discouraged about how bad things are, go read the parables of Jesus and Matthew. Here's the one that I cling to all the time. Jesus tells the parable, I'm paraphrasing. A farmer goes out to a field, takes his seed, and just throws his seed. And no one knows how, but there's a harvest. Now let me tell you something really crazy. Seed. You know where the fastest, you know where the most people in the world are coming to faith in Jesus right now? Afghanistan and Iran. The gospel gets seed. You know what's going on? Can I just tell you about Afghanistan? You know, you know the story. After all that's happened, the followers of Jesus are being hunted down and murdered in Afghanistan right now. Social media, whatever they can find, the drones that have been left behind, they are looking for Christians and they are looking to kill Christians in Afghanistan. And where's the gospel just blowing up? In Afghanistan. Why? Because the seed is being planted in all kinds of crazy ways. If you look at chapter 3, 1 through 8, oh no, what's going on? Yeah, 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 we, yeah, it's bad. Yeah, it's bad. But what's the king doing in all the crap? You know the story. It's too serious. Story is told about two brothers, the optimist and the pessimist. 
one day at Christmas time, when Christmas, mom and dad bought the pessimist all kinds of toys, presents. And as the pessimist looked at all of it, he said, is that all there is? The optimist, they took out to the barn. They hadn't shoveled the manure for weeks. He walks into all that manure. He says, with this much poop here, there's got to be a horse somewhere. <laughs> Listen to this. In order for a wine, uh, in order for a grape vine to grow in Napa Valley, it takes a lot of manure. Could it be the manure in our lives, chapter 33, 1 through 8, that we are, oh, are actually the things that our good God is using to raise a harvest? And if you have an eternal perspective, all of a sudden you start looking at life differently. A couple slides. I've got to finish the passage. Let me finish up. Um, Verse 22, so I saw there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that's their lot. Now go back to chapter 3, verse 12. Same verse, same words. I'm going to start at 11. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. This weekend, I was, uh, I was in Wichita for some meetings, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And before I left yesterday, I was sitting in the lobby and also in that meeting, in that city, in the hotel where we were staying, was a huge AA convention from Kansas City. And there were hundreds of people who were seeking to be sober. And I was really struck before I left, there was a man about my age who was surrounded by younger people. And I couldn't help overheard the conversation. And as he is talking, he talks about all the difficult places of his life and then he talked about becoming sober, and he used, he became a follower of Jesus, not just the 12 steps, a follower of Jesus. And he began to talk about how his life has changed and how his perspective changed. And I watched all these young people, sitting around young people, 20s and 30s and 40s, looking at him, listening to him, and I could just see their minds turning. How does this work? How does this work? How do you do this? And what he said, I thought was so interesting. He said, you live one day at a time, but you keep eternity in view. So do you notice what I did for an action step? I've seen this every week now. What, what is the action step? Action step is simply have a meal. Five times, he's going to say, have a meal. Have a meal and look at people in the eyes. Don't just gobble a meal down. Have a meal and look and listen and ask. Because someday in eternity, that will be part, somehow part of our experience. Read chapter 3, 1 through 22. What, what, is it, what, what struck you in this passage? Am I living a chapter 3, 1 through 8 person trying to control, control? And I just become angrier and angrier and more cynical and more afraid and more concerned. Or do I say, Lord, I know you placed eternity in my heart. And I'm going to think about eternal things. You will make all things right. So how do we look at time? 
Can I have slide number um, seven? Let's go seven, eight, nine, real quick. The acceptance that we have a limited understanding of and limited access to the big picture can encourage us to choose to flourish. And I, I think I can say, I think this is a valid statement. You, many of you know I, I'm, I, I do, I like to learn. And I spend, I don't think it'd be an exaggeration to say that either myself or our church is probably, in my time here, I'm sure spent $50,000 on books, $50,000 on books. And at age almost 67, you know how much I know? Almost nothing. One of the smartest theologians ever lived, kind of Karl Barth, was asked, so tell us, wise theologian, what's your theology? He said, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. I don't know much, but I know the one who does. And I want to be hooked up with him. And he says to us, don't get so caught up in everything that's just so random and so short term. Yes, live, like, enjoy, listen, enjoy life. I'm not an a, a alcohol person, but if you read the text carefully, he says, enjoy a great glass of wine. Have a phenomenal meal. Do your job the best that you can. And remember, you're going to die. So you can live. So you can live. So we have, I have access to someone in Afghanistan. And the story came back to me. And this person, uh, two weeks ago, just said, we anticipate, we anticipate that the Taliban will come and kill us in the next two weeks. They know where we are, and we anticipate being killed. So would you pray for us, this person wrote, that we will die with, this, with the idea that we will live. Pray that we'll have courage to die honorably for Jesus. They don't understand what's happening now, but they understand what's happening here. The next slide, please. Contentment lodges in our hearts when we accept the boundaries of our lives as coming from our Creator's good, wise, and loving heart. We've been given the gift of life. It's a gift. 67 years ago or so, 68, my mom and dad gave me the gift of life. I didn't deserve it, didn't earn it, didn't choose it. It was a gift. And now, I get a chance, you get a chance, we get a chance to live out of the place of our loving Creator's heart. To do the best we can in the simple things of life. Next slide, please, and then we're going to have quick some neighborhood conversation. Here's chapter three in bullet points. There's a time to be born. There's a time to work. A time to receive simple gifts 
which are to be enjoyed. A time to die. A time for judgment when all will be made right. And what goes on is a glorious, never-ending time. That is what it means to be a Christian. Yes? So, neighborhood conversation. Slide 10, please. Could you, if you, I, I wrote this poorly, so just talk with each other. I'll tell you what I'm trying to say. Knowing that God is outside time, that we understand, that God sees it all, and in the end will make it all right, can that help me to stop needing to be a control freak of everything in my life? Does that make, I guess here's the question, does that make sense to you? If it does, how about two minutes of conversation? If not, pretend you're praying. On your marks, get set, go. Anybody want to anyone want to share something I can repeat to everybody? Would anybody have on something that's repeatable? Anybody? Yep, Kathy, and then wow. I don't know if you caught it, but Kathy just said. COVID is one of those examples of things that of which we have no control. When, I, again, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm as dumb as a donkey. But what, what, I, what I'm observing in the COVID years is what I think God is doing is deconstructing everything. Our institutions are being deconstructed. The government's being deconstructed. Econ economics, school systems, churches. There's, there's, the Lord is deconstructing because he's building something. But in that, what I want to get at from what Kathy said is fundamentally what the book of Ecclesiastes is asking us to do is to trust. Listen to this, Hebrews 11. Faith is the assurance of what we hope for. It is a confidence in what we do not yet see. So the book of Ecclesiastes is saying you can't control daily life. So we all have to decide, will we trust that what is promised is as good as we think it is. In that light, will I choose to enjoy a good meal? Could I enjoy my primary relationships? Let me just push into that real quickly one more time. This, I, I, I want to keep emphasizing this. We, we don't hear what I'm not saying. We are to be kind to all people. Absolutely. But we can't be neighbors to all people. So I think Dallas Willard's thinking is so right here. Your neighbors start with the people we live with. We, we are to love and serve and bless the people we live with. So that's why a simple thing, like even once a week, a great meal. Once a week, just a great connecting time with husband and wife. Once a week, singles invited into relationships with those who are not single. Once a week, we say to ourselves, I'm going to do my job for the best of my ability 
to honor Jesus. It's these simple things. And if we have an eternal perspective, we understand we have many, many simple good gifts. Enjoy the simple gifts starting with whom you live. And then we have another circle and another. I think we can argue, so real fast, studies of churches. People, people often say, we don't want to go to a big church. And there's absolutely right, there's truth to that. Let me ask you a question. How many people does the average churchgoer of any size church know by name? Less than 50 people. So the reality is, whether we're a big church or a small church, we don't know anybody. So we come to places where I, I can recognize people's faces, but we don't know. And this is why you start, with, you start with who your neighbors are, and then slowly, if all of us are good neighbors, the culture gets impacted. But if I'm a crappy neighbor to my wife and our kids, they're going to be crappy neighbors to everyone there. And all of a sudden, crappy neighbors, crappy neighbors are affecting our culture. So you know, read the scripture. Scripture begins, judgment begins with the house of God. You think America's going to hell? It's because of us. Right? I'm, I'm quoting scripture, 1 Peter. If, if you think our country's in bad shape, take a look right here. How am I doing with my neighbors? Right? The people here, the closest people to me, the people I interact with at school, at work, the closest people, that's what, that, those, that, see, we can do that. And all of a sudden, the people are not interruptions and problems. They're gifts to us. These are the people God gave me. These are the people I am to love. These are the people I am to serve. And then what begins to happen is something absolutely beautiful. So the invitation is worship together weekly. Worship to recenter, to get our heart just for a few moments, to get our hearts and lives together centered on the risen Jesus so that we can be refilled with his presence, refilled with his goodness, refilled with his gifts so that we can go back into culture and we can love our neighbors and anyone else God sends their way. Remember, the word love is to will the good of another. So today, could you enjoy a Sabbath meal or sometime this week? Set aside, real fast, do simple things like light a candle before you actually eat. Stand in a circle Pray for each other out loud. Pray for the person on your right. Simple prayers. Light a candle, which represents the Holy Spirit is present with us. Sit together at a table for 20 minutes if you can. Longer if better. And just look at each other. Talk. Listen. Listen. Listen with the eyes of your heart, the ears of your heart. Listen. If we, is this fair? If you listen well, how quickly does the person you're listening to start to cry? Am I speaking the truth? I, mean, I must have a thing in my head that says, talk to Kevin, cry. Because, I mean, everywhere I go. So here I'm sitting in the lobby yesterday. Whole bunch of AA folks. I'm sitting by myself. Just drinking a cup of coffee. Some lady sits down next to me and says, can I talk to you? Sure. <laughs> and then what's nutty, it's, I don't know this lady for nothing. She sits next to me, and then when she's done, she says, you pray for me? I don't pray out loud. I said, sure. So I said, may I put your hand on your shoulder? She said, yes. And I began to pray. She prayed a simple blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 
Just, just did this simple blessing. When I got done, another woman came over. Before we, she stood up and she said, will you give me a hug? I said, sure. So I gave her a hug. Another woman came over and said, do you know her story? I said, I have no clue. She said, she was horribly sexually abused as a young person. And she needed to hear an old man offer a blessing and give her a non-sexual hug. We can all do this. And very slowly, the kingdom comes. Amen? Lord, we thank you and we praise you that you're all about great stuff. So we thank you that you're helping us become more like Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen. We have elders here to serve communion. And if you choose, down the hallway to the left is the place of prayer. You're welcome to receive communion or prayer. Would you please stand for the blessing? We'll be dismissed. So may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of God our Father, may the presence, the power, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you now and always. Amen. See somebody you don't know, give them a high five or a hug or elbow thing or knee or something. God bless.